Uh, six years ago, basically to the day, believe it or not, uh, we held our first regular service as Grace Valley Church in uh, what's known as the Hamilton Air Force Club. It's on King Street, heading out of Dundas, got a big airplane in it for all the kids that were part of that, uh, that time of the church's life. It, that was Airplane Church. You guys remember Airplane Church? Yeah, it was awesome, eh? Yeah, those were the good old days. No, they were, they were okay days. But anyway, we, we held our first service. We had 120 people come out to church. It was super exciting and encouraging, etc. And then the next week, uh, we went down to 60. So on the first service, we had lots of family and friends who were there to celebrate with us launching this new church in Dundas. And then the following week, those people went back to wherever they were from. And we were left with our little group of 60 people. Uh, and over the last six years, obviously, things have changed. We, after two years, we outgrew the Hafa, and we end up worshiping in uh, the gym here uh, in, in the other end of Knox Church. And then uh, COVID hit, and we ended up worshiping exclusively online for a while. But then when the opportunity arose, we started worshiping here in the sanctuary, and we, of course, had... Uh, capacity restrictions, of course, and, and all these, these things going on. And then finally, uh, this past year, uh, we were able to purchase this property and worship in here regularly as we, were, uh, as we were excited to do and be able to do. And we ordained our first elders, etc. And now we've grown also as a church where we're averaging an attendance of just over 200 people on a Sunday. So that's, that's a significant increase. And you know, before COVID hit, we averaged maybe 120 people or so in church generally. Um, and then when COVID hit, we didn't know where our people were really or what. And, and then when we came back, the numbers jumped pretty drastically. And in the last six months, anyhow, they've, they've really gone through the, through the roof. And I'm, it's not, I'm not telling you this because, you know, I think numbers drive the life of the church. Why I'm telling you this is because we're not the same church that we were in October of 2016. Even people who have been going here uh, since that time, since we started, people who are part of the first group that, that started worshiping will say that on any given Sunday, there's many, many new faces, people that they don't necessarily recognize, uh, people that they maybe uh, know sort of uh, uh, casually, but not deeply, etc. And of course, that's one of the reasons that we have started uh, emphasizing community building opportunities for our church, things like... Uh, uh, the potluck that's happening this Sunday, and of course we're hopefully going to have a cool euchre night uh, uh, sometime in November. We've had women's breakfasts, we're going to have a men's breakfast. We're doing things together so that we can get to know one another. Now, six years ago, when we, uh, six years ago, when we first started worshiping together as Grace Valley Church, I, 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 I began my very first worship, or, or sorry, sermon series uh, called Foundations. And in that sermon series, what I, what I did was I kind of cast the vision and mission of Grace Valley Church. Why do we exist? What are we here for? What are we trying to accomplish within the community of Dundas? What are we trying to accomplish as we grow together as a church family, etc.? And and uh, what we're going to do, actually, is we're going to uh, resurrect, in a sense, that 
sermon series because we have so many people who have joined since the beginning of Grace Valley, and we want to make sure that we all understand together what in the world Grace Valley is all about, because we want to avoid something called mission drift. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that term before, but what it means is, is that any organization doesn't just have to be a church. It could be a business. It could be a nonprofit. It could be whatever. Any organization needs to have a very clear understanding of what it's trying to do and where it's trying to go as a community, because if it doesn't, as it grows and new people become part of it, they have their own ideas and their own agendas and their own goals, and those might be good ideas and good agendas and very good goals, but if they don't fit with the mission of the institution, that institution ends up going all over the place, trying to be all things to all people, and eventually what happens is, is it goes nowhere. Or it ends up somewhere it didn't intend to be. And we don't want that to happen with Grace Valley Church, obviously, and so we want to keep our goals in mind so that we do not wander. So today is the first in a five-week series, basically, on the foundational mission, vision, core values of Grace Valley Church. And we're looking at this really, really short passage. Now, why are we looking at this really, really short passage? Okay, let me start this way. Every good political campaign or advertising campaign needs to have a clear core message. You guys remember when Rob Ford ran for the mayoralty of Toronto? If, if you do, anybody remember what his, what his core message was? Come on, this is supposed to work. If you, don't, if you don't know the answer, this doesn't work. Rob Ford, mayor of Toronto, what did he keep saying over and over again? What was he going to do? I'm going to... Stop the gravy train. Did someone say that? Did you say that, Kathy? Oh. Well, you're going to say Kathy said it. Right! Exactly! Stop the gravy train. And look how many years later you still remember that. Let me try another one then. Um, when Donald Trump began campaigning as, uh, to be president of the United States, what was his catchphrase? I'm going to... Make America great again. Now, regardless of what you think about Donald Trump and his politics, it was a catchy message, and it was a memorable message. Everybody knew what he was about and what he was a trying to accomplish. Now, here we are in, in Mark chapter 1, and we're reading about Jesus. Now, Jesus obviously was not a political figure, but Jesus was a public figure. And he had a message that he wanted to bring, and he had only had three years to bring that message. Three years, that's how long his ministry was. It's actually shorter than a typical presidential campaign, really. And in those three years, his message was meant to change history. It was meant to, to transform the course of history. It was meant to, to change people's lives. And, and it was meant to, to transform their hearts and their minds and help them understand reality and life and existence from a different perspective. It, it was meant to do great things, remarkable things. What was that message? Well, it's summarized right here in verse 15 of our passage. 
the kingdom of God has come near or is at hand is another way it's translated. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This was before Twitter, but you could tweet this. Even when Twitter was only 140 characters, it still fit. A very succinct, punchy message. The kingdom of God is at hand or is, has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Everything that Jesus came to do, everything that Jesus was saying about himself was encapsulated in that phrase. And as we are sort of relaunching as a church, so to speak, as we are are looking at our foundations again and trying to understand, remind ourselves why we're here and what we're trying to accomplish, we're going to look at this phrase. Like, God has a plan for this church, no doubt. But what we're going to see is that this message, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news, is a message that Jesus gave to the church. And he's given it to us, the church here in Grace Valley, to proclaim as we be church in this community and in this neighborhood. So, Whatever we're going to do as a church, and there's lots of opportunities to do things, this core message is going to be at the heart, at, at, at the core of everything that Grace Valley is about. And we're going to proclaim this. We're going to proclaim it boldly. We're going to proclaim it winsomely. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. And believe the good news. Three things we're going to see in this passage together. We're going to see that Jesus tells us who he is in this phrase. What he came to do. And how we can be a part of it. Who he is. What he came to do. And how we can be a part of it. That's what we're going to look at. So here we go. First of all, Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does Jesus mean when he says that? Well, what he's telling us is, is that he is a king. He is royalty. Jesus is coming and making a tremendous claim. He's saying that I am here to rule. And in fact, I have the right to rule because I am royalty itself. Now, you and I, we're modern people. We live in the 21st century and we live in a democracy. And we hear this kind of language. And it sounds a little bit weird to us at first. Because our history is that monarchies are problematic Kingdoms are not good because what we've seen in history, in our own history even, is that not only does power corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. You ever heard that phrase before? That's from a guy named Lord Acton. Interesting, he was a lord. <laughs> and yet, he said that. And so we like democracy, we like rule of the people, we like having our voice being heard and coming to a consensus and, and sort of sharing the responsibility of rule. But you got to understand, that was a different time back then. Here was Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel were actually living under oppressors. The Roman Empire had control of all of Palestine and they made the rules of how they were to live there and they understood oppression and Jesus came to say, I am a different kind of authority. I am a different kind of king. I am a king that is not going to oppress you. I am a king that is actually going to bring you freedom. 
Now, what's interesting is, is that even though you and I don't necessarily believe in monarchies, so to speak, because we're schooled and we're raised in a, a democratic kind of community, our hearts long for the kind of kingship that Jesus said he was here to bring. It's interesting to look, look through world history at the literature of all kinds of cultures throughout history and in all kinds of cultures around the world. And you see this common theme, okay? You'll see it in the Arthurian legend. Um, you'll see it in the story of Richard the Lionheart. You'll see this, of course, in Lord of the Rings, which is one of the best illustrations of it in all of literature. And then you'll also see it in The Matrix, which is actually a pretty good illustration of it in all of cinema. And you'll see it if you're into cartoons, Kung Fu Panda. One of the best cartoon movies ever made, in my opinion. And here's the theme, okay? The theme is, is that there was a land that, that lived under the gracious rule of a wise king. He was magnanimous, he was gracious, he was merciful, he was kind, but he was also very, very tough on evildoers. He was wise enough to tell the difference between good and evil, and he chose the good. And under his rule, under his leadership, the people prospered. The people flourished. There was freedom, there was joy, there was peace in the land. All things were good, and, and everybody was happy. But then... The story goes that something happened. For some reason, the king was separated from his people. He was either separated from them or they were separated from him. But it creates a, a leadership vacuum, so to speak. And what comes in and fills the vacuum? Evil. Evil is always crouching at the door, as Genesis tells us, and it desires to overcome us. It desires to have us, not just on an individual level, but on a corporate level as well. And so an evil tyrant who is a usurper, is a, an interloper, comes in and takes over, and a whole new regime is in control. And that, that regime oppresses the people. And the good life is gone, and everything turns bad. But here's the thing. Before the king left, or before the people were banished from the king, he would issue a promise. Or it would come through an oracle. Or it would be given in some kind of prophecy. And the, the promise was, I will return. You may have to wait a long time, but I will be back and I will overcome the usurper. I will overcome the tyrant. I will reestablish my throne and I will usher in a golden age of never-ending peace and prosperity for the people. You see this theme played out over and over and over and over again around the world in all kinds of literature. Why? Well, the anthropological answer to that, anthropological, what do I mean by that? The, there are people who study the history of cultures. They're called anthropologists. And their answer to that is, we need a way to deal with the obvious suffering and evil that we see in the world around us. We need a way to deal with that. 
There are stories of evil all over the place. We're seeing it play out in grand scale right now in Eastern Europe as we we see this despot, this tyrant trying to invade and overcome another nation. We hear about it in places like North Korea where Kim Jong-un has ruled with an iron fist over his people. And we've seen this over and over and over again, that, that people use other people because they love power and are willing to take, uh, to use other people and oppress them and discriminate against them in order to gain their power and in order to control their power. I was just listening to, uh, and, and, and it's, we need a way to cope with that. We need a way to cope with that. I was watching uh, or listening to the radio this week, and I heard an interview with a guy named Steve Ryan. Now, he used to be a homicide detective in the city of Toronto. And he recently just wrote a book about his experiences as a homicide detective and about the horrible things that he had to, to witness as a homicide detective. Just terrible stuff. Stuff that will make the hair on your neck stand up. It really is true that that truth is, they say truth is better than fiction, but it's really true that truth is worse than fiction. Like the kind of stuff this guy describes that he had to see were horrible, and it caused tremendous PTSD to him. And this happens to a lot of police officers, but what was fascinating in this, art, in this interview, he said that he had lost because of his experience as a, as a police officer, he had lost the ability to see goodness in the world. Because everybody looked like a monster in disguise based upon what he had seen. He could no longer find joy and wonder in the world around him. Even in the natural world, he, he said, I could be walking in a park, it's, it's fall, and the colors are changing, and people are blowing, blowing their minds at how beautiful they are this season. He says, it meant nothing to me. I couldn't even get a spark of joy from something like that because of all the garbage that this guy had seen in his life. And so anthropologists say, because we know the world is evil, we know that life is hard, we know that people suck and are mean and are ter terrible to one another, we need a story of hope. And so we create these stories, like the one I just described to you. The theme that, that evil will one day be overcome. But here's another reason that this is a common theme throughout the world, and it's the one the Bible gives, and it's this. The story's true. The story's true. The story actually happened in the garden. You go back to the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we, we learn that, that Adam and Eve, our first parents, they lived under the perfectly gracious rule of God himself. And therefore, they had perfect harmony with, with their creator. They had perfect harmony with one another, uh, uh, interacting as human beings. And they had perfect harmony with the, with the land and with the world all around them. But then the usurper came, Satan. And he whispered in our first parents' ears, causing them to question the trustworthiness of their creator. And they rebelled. And they decided that they ought to be their own ruler. They ought to be the, the one who decides uh, what is right and wrong for them. They didn't want to live under his rule anymore. They wanted to be like God, deciding when it says knowing good and evil, that, 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 if you, that uh, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And that if they were to eat of that, that they would know good and evil. That's what the devil said. What he meant was is that they would be able to decide what was good and what was evil for themselves. And they fell for it. And they, they plunged the world into chaos. It's, it's like here we are in the solar system and all the planets are nicely traveling around the sun and everything's going great. And then all of a sudden earth gets its, in its head that it doesn't like running around the sun the way all the other planets does. And it says, I'm going to run my own orbit. I'm going to, I'm going to go left when I'm supposed to go right. Or I'm going to go, I don't know, clockwise instead of counterclockwise. I don't know how it works in the solar system, but you get what I'm saying. What would happen if the earth did that? If it said, I'm stepping out of the orbit and I'm doing my own thing. Chaos. Planets crashing into one another. Things flying into the sun and being burned up forever. That's precisely what happened. If you ask yourself this question, why is the world a mess? Sure, you can point to socioeconomic issues or you can point to political issues. You can point to these grand issues. But everything boils down to one problem. Self-centeredness. That's it. Self-centeredness. When one nation wants to rule over another nation, they're doing it out of self-interest. When corporations try to take as much money as they can from the people that they are offering their products to, they're doing it out of self-interest. We live in a world that says, look, me before you, me over you, maybe me through you, if necessary. Here's a husband and wife, and they're having marriage problems, and they sit down with me, and this has happened many times, and I ask them, what's the problem here? And they both describe the problems, and it virtually boils down to two people holding on to their rights and demanding that their rights be met and being unwilling to serve the other. And oftentimes, one is far more guilty of this self-centeredness than the other. It's true, but that's what's at the root of this thing. And Putin bombs Ukraine for the exact same thing. He wants power. He wants glory. It's at the root of human trafficking. When one people will actually use another people and sell them, it's essentially modern slavery, it, into, uh, sell them into sex slavery in order to profit. But here's the thing. On a smaller scale, when we live with self-interest in mind, meaning I'm the one who's going to rule my life, I'm going to de decide what is right or wrong, it leads not to the goodness and the, the freedom and the joy that we think it's going to lead to. It actually leads to anxiety. And it leads to worry. And it leads to fear. Because you see, we were never built to have that kind of responsibility. Let me illustrate this this way. Our kids are younger. We go camping. One of my kids had always thought that they, when they were younger, they always thought that they were more capable than they actually were. And in fact, pretty much all of them were like that. But this one really was like that. And so this child, as soon as we get to the campground, set up, gets on their bike and says, I'm going for a bike ride. And we say, mm, hold on, you're kind of young. You're only like, I don't know, I think they were seven or eight. We've never camped here before. Our campsite number is X, Y, and Z. You can go around the loop. Just go around the loop because if you go in one circle, you'll end up at the same place. No, 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 I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And they take off. Gone. Well, sure enough, 
way too long later, and admittedly, we as parents, we were like, we didn't even realize they were gone as long as they were. So, so maybe that's why they were so self-assertively independent, because we were not very, what's the word, uh, attentive parents at the time. Anyway, so they come back, and who do they come back with? They come back with two wonderful older people who had found them wandering on their bike all through the, the campground, long way off from where they were supposed to be. And thankfully, the child remembered what the site number was, and they were able to return this child back to us. Now, here's the interesting thing. We could see on this child's face the look of fear and anxiety as they were returned. And as soon as this couple left and were out of sight, they broke down and bawled their eyes out. They were terrified. And they were terrified because what they were realizing was that all the, all the self-confidence uh, self, uh, uh, that they had had led them into an activity that they were not ready for, they were not built for, they were not capable of, of doing at that time, and therefore it created all kinds of this tension in their hearts. And the Bible says that you and I were not created to have this kind of control over our lives where we're deciding who we are and what we are and what's right for us and what's wrong for us. We have countless young people today who are sitting in their beds, on their beds at night, scrolling through their social media, wondering what their gender is, what their sex is, and how they're supposed to conduct themselves as a boy or a girl or whatever, stuff that never happened years and years and years ago because we have created a society where we are bound and determined, come hell or high water, to be the ones who decide for ourselves how we ought to live. And we think it is this most liberating thing, and yet anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation is ramping up to the extreme. We were never built for this kind of responsibility. Jesus comes and he says, what I have come to do is to free you. I've come to free you. You think that my rule is going to constrict you. But my rule is actually going to bring you freedom. It's going to bring you freedom from fear and freedom from ang that anxiety and freedom from, from the oppression you feel for having to decide for yourself everything about yourself. My kingdom is the kingdom that every human being longs for. That's what he's saying. I'm that king. Well, okay. How's he going to do that? What did he come to do? This is point number two. Jesus came to do the good news. It says, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus has come to do this good news. Now, follow me. What in the world is this? Good news is the translation of the word gospel. Gospel means good news. Now, it's not just any kind of good news, okay? It's not like you open the Canadian Tire Flyer and you see that they have 50% off winter tires right now. Don't forget to get your winter tires. And you say, well, that's good news. 50% off sale. And that's not what we're talking about here. There's different types of good news. And the good news that Jesus is, is talking about here is, is what you could call epoch-making good news. This word is, is meant 
to describe a very particular life-changing news, that if this news gets to you and, and if this news infiltrates your society, then it will change that entire society. The news is this, I have come to rescue you. Remember the story, the theme back in Genesis. Adam and Eve, they were banished from God's presence. Our first parents were, were sent from God's presence because of their rebellion. And Jesus came and, he, and even though we, are, we have been under this, the rule of this tyrant, Satan, and the, the powers of darkness, Jesus has come to free us from that oppression. And in the story, in Genesis chapter 3, we read that, that when Adam and Eve were banished out of the garden, that God put at the entrance to the garden, and the garden represents the presence of God, right? At the entrance to the garden, God put an angel with a flaming sword. And the symbolism of that was to say that if you want back into the presence of God, if you want to be in the place where everything is right and everything is meant to, the way it is meant to be, you've got to go under the sword. You've got to get through me first. It's not you have to defeat the angel, okay? It's not like you can take up your sword and with a little bit of Kung Fu Panda power, you can defeat that angel and get back into the presence of God. No, the only way to get into the presence of God is to go under that sword, is death, it's death. Because you see, the penalty for the rebellion that Adam and Eve uh, uh, raised against God was, tr was what, what, their treason was death. And still today, in many places around the world, even if you commit treason against your government, the penalty for that is death. And so a ransom had to be paid in order for someone to, to enter the kingdom of God again and be back in his presence. But if you or I go under the sword, of course, what happens to us? We die. But God's conundrum was that he wanted us back. And he doesn't want us to die. He doesn't long for our death. He doesn't wish for our death. He desires that this relationship be restored. And so what's he going to do? And Jesus comes and he says, I have come to give you life by giving my life. In Mark chapter 8, he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I will go under the sword for you. Jesus doesn't defeat death by pulling out his sword and having a massive sword fight with the angel in front of the Garden of Eden. No, he puts his sword away and he walks through death for you and for me. He says, I will pay the ransom. I will be the penalty. While he was dying on the cross and people were laughing at him and he was being killed by the Roman soldiers, he removed the sword from us. That's why he says, it is finished. And listen, when he says it is finished, I don't even know this, but that, that temple, uh, that curtain that stood at the entrance to the most holiest place in the temple had embroidered on it an angel with a flaming sword. And what does Matthew tell us? At the moment Jesus cried, it is finished, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. So that we could be back in the presence. That's the good news. And here's the thing. Jesus did it for us. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, the Bible does not come to us and say, look, you have screwed up and you're in the doghouse, but I got a way for you to get out. Here's what you got to do. Be like me. Jesus doesn't come and say, let me show you the way. 
to get back into the presence of God. Here's what you got to do. Look at me. I don't ever fill out. I don't ever take in money and hold on to it myself. I am perfectly and completely generous all the time. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't believe in retirement plans and RRSPs. Be like me. Be like me. When someone is wicked and hurtful and, and angry towards you, turn the other cheek and do not return evil for evil. Be like me. Love those who persecute you and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Pray for them. Be like me. Hang out with the undesirables. I hung out with lepers and I hung out with prostitutes and I hung out with people that was really difficult to, con to keep a conversation going with. Be like me. And if you're like me, you can get back into the kingdom of God. If that was the message, how good a news would that be? I can tell you myself, it would be terrible news because I'm listening to that and thinking to myself, I'm dead man. I, I just don't like people as much as Jesus did. And I, I'm not as generous as Jesus was. I would be buried by that standard. But the gospel is that God in Jesus Christ does for you what you couldn't do for yourself. That's what he came to do. Well, how can we be a part of it? This is the last thing. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. The Bible does not say, remember, follow me and do what I do. It says repent and believe. What does it mean to repent? To repent means to just admit that you're a rebel. It's not enough to just simply say, oh, oops, I did, I did something wrong and I'm really, really sorry for that. In fact, it's to, it's to realize that even the good things that you do are caused by a self-centered desire. You want to do them on your terms. You want to do them to make yourself feel good. You want to do them to build your reputation with others. Your problem is, is that too often when you even try to do good things, as Isaiah says, the good deeds are actually like filthy rags. As C.S. Lewis put it, human beings are not imperfect people who need a little bit of improvement. They are rebels who need to lay down their arms. To repent is to say, I will no longer try to rule my own life. I know I've made a muck of it, but I surrender it to you. You are my son, and I will orbit around you. And the other side of it, of course, is to believe. Well, what does it mean to believe? Listen carefully, because some of you, this is the part you're having a really hard time getting. The repenting part you think you're getting because you feel really, really bad all the time. And you think to yourself, I must be a good Christian because I feel terrible most days. I feel so unworthy and I feel so awful and I feel like such a big sinner. I must be a good Christian because I'm, I'm very aware of my sinfulness. But the reason you're, not your reason you're feeling that way is because you're not understanding the second half. To believe, which is to believe that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for you and he did it finally and he did it fully and he did it completely so that there is nothing left to be done. Nothing. 
It's to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and not say in some kind of general, vague way, Jesus died for the sins of humanity or whatever. It's to look at the cross and to see him with his arms open, with the nail-pierced hands and the nail-pierced feet and the sword that was in his side and the people mocking and spitting at him and him having at any moment the opportunity and the right to call down a million angels to slay his enemies before his feet. But instead, he hung there and he took it and then when God's own wrath was poured out on him for sin, he continued to take it as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? Because your name was on his lips. You, not humanity generally, not people down through history, but you, Your name was graven on his hands. Your name was written on his heart. Your name was on his lips. He said, I was doing this for Tom, for Paul, for Alice, for Jenny, for Peter. I'm doing it for you. That's what it means to believe. And when that, when that hits you, then you don't spend your days with your head hanging down because you're a wicked, wicked sinner. You spend your days with your chin up and a smile on your face and a glow that people can't understand because you say, I'm a wicked, wicked sinner that's been forgiven. He knew you at your worst, you see. He died for you not when you were tithing and volunteering and reading your Bible every day and raising your kids to know Jesus and following your, your, your diet plan and exercising regularly and taking care of your body. He died at you when you were, or died for you when you were a slob, when you didn't care less about reading scripture, when you ignored going to church, when you didn't want to serve people, when you were at your worst. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, one theologian put this this way. In the cross, God demonstrates the deepest law of acceptance. You hear that? The deepest law of of acceptance. For to be convinced that I have been accepted, I must be convinced that I have been accepted at my worst. This is the greatest gift an intimate relationship can offer. To know that we have been accepted and forgiven in the full knowledge of who we are and even greater knowledge of us than we have of ourselves. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, you don't know. He's saying this, cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. But God already knows how bad we really are. And Jesus paid it all. Conclusion. What is Grace Valley going to do? Now we've got this big property and this, we've got more people. We have more capacity for ministry. We have lots of people who have great ideas and, and desires to do stuff. And that's cool. I dig it. And I'd love to see what's going to happen. But you know what? One thing I hope and pray we will do is we will share this message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. 
with all of our hearts because it is the best news the world has ever known.